You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 15 is where we are in our study of God's Word today. Matthew chapter 15, if you would please join with me in turning there. And this morning we have arrived at the 10th verse. We're going to be examining down to verse 20. But I want to read beginning at verse 1 to put these verses in their context. Matthew chapter 15. And we read beginning with the first verse. The Bible says this, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever you might benefit from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Now we come to verse 10. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Now Peter answered and said to him, Explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and goes into the sewer? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask His blessing. Our need is great, Lord, and I am so grateful that You are sufficient for our need. Our need is great when it comes to this time of preaching. I am inadequate and insufficient for this task, but I am grateful that Your work always transcends the vessel. And we pray that Your all sufficiency is on display in this next hour, both as you work in and through me and as you work in our hearts 
as we listen to your word read and explained and applied. We thank you for the good testimonies we've heard this morning. We thank you for our brother and sister who obeyed you in the matter of baptism, the way that their testimonies spoke to our hearts and encouraged us. We again, Lord, thank you for the opportunity we've had to sing your praises. But now, Lord, we worship you around your word and ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher in this next hour. Lord Jesus, would you save the lost today? Someone hearing me this day, they are still in a spiritual grave. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. Would you make some to live this day as they hear your word? We gather as your church on a weekly basis because we have need. Your church has need. Your people have need to hear your word this day. Lord, would you wash us with the pure water of your word? Would you encourage us where we need it? and strengthen us where we need it. Reprove us where we need it. Correct us where we need it. Lord, would your mercy and forgiveness and grace be on display in the lives of your church, your people, as we hear your word go forth this day. We will thank you for what you do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. What is man's problem? What is man's problem? What is his problem with God. Does he have a problem with God? I mean, from the time of his birth, is man born into the world in a relationship with God that is just fine, or does he have a problem? What is man's problem with himself? What is man's problem with other people? What really is our problem? In Titus chapter 3, verse 3, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul tells us what our condition was before we knew Christ, if you know Jesus today. Tells us the condition of the world outside of Christ, anyone who doesn't know Christ. Titus 3.3 says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy hated by others, and hating one another. What a summary of what our condition was, if you know Jesus today, or is if you don't know Him. We lived our lives in a foolish state. We lived our lives in a disobedient state, rebellious toward God by our very nature, deceived, led astray, enslaved to sin. Not just enslaved to, to sin as it exists about us, but but to sin as it existed within us. This is why he said slaves to various passions and pleasures. And we lived our lives in a state of hostility, hostile in mind toward God. As a result, there was a hostility that operated within our own hearts and often expressed itself toward other people. That is a description of man's problem. Maybe someone who loves you has posed this question to you. What is wrong with you? Do you not know what is really wrong with you? Maybe they witness in you patterns of self-destructive behavior. Maybe they see in your life things happening that are, that are ruinous to yourself and to those who love you. And they've said to you, do you not realize what is really wrong with you? Or maybe in a state of discouragement and perhaps even despair, this is something you've said to yourself in the quietness of your own heart. You've said, what is really wrong with me? 
Why do I think the way that I think? Why do I have the attitudes that I do? Why do I behave the ways that I do? What is it that's wrong with me? This is definitely a question being asked about the world of humanity. What is wrong in our world? Why do people behave like they do? Why do they embrace behaviors and philosophies and lifestyles, even explanations of reality and interpretations of history that are demonstrably untrue? I mean, you just look at the way things really are. You look at the facts. You look at the results. You look at the confusion, the chaos, the loss that comes along with such worldviews, and yet people still champion those worldviews. I mean, even as they destroy their own society with their worldviews, they still hold on to them. And so we ask, what is wrong with people? Why does the world have so much hatred in it? Why so much violence, cruelty, murder, chaos in families, confusion in people themselves, even down to the level of denial of their own biological reality? Men claiming to be women, women claiming to be men. Why all of the self-harm in our society and harm to other people? What is man's problem? And I want you to realize, I think you know this, but I want to say it. Everyone embraces an answer to that question, whether they want to admit it or not. Everybody has an answer to that question. If I ask you what is wrong with humanity, you have an answer. Let me offer a few of the answers that are given. For some people, they would say there is no problem. The problem is that we think there's a problem. If we just accept the fact that there are no moral absolutes, if we could finally all embrace the idea that each one of us has to live our own truth, we have to come to our own perspectives about what we believe is right and wrong. We all have our own moral standard, and what your moral standard is is perfectly fine, and what mine is is perfectly fine. Even if they are at odds with one another, each one of us must determine for ourselves what we believe is right or wrong. The problem is that we keep trying to put people under this puritanical idea that there's a moral standard that everyone has to adhere to, and if we could just get rid of that then we would be okay. Just let everybody be who they are. Let's just live and let live. And if we do that, then everything's going to be fine. The problem, of course, is if you ever go to places where they experiment with that imaginary utopia, you quickly discover that their society is full of chaos and destruction. What we need to do is eliminate the police. What we need to do is decriminalize what has long been considered criminal. Go to a society that embraces that ideology and tell me what you find. I'll tell you what you're going to find. Rational people are leaving those places. And crazy people are crazy in those places. Because it's just not true, is it? It's just not true. We do have a problem. But there are some people who want to imagine there isn't one. A second type of answer is, okay, we will admit there's a problem, but there's no real way to explain it. We know the world has evil in it. We know there are things that are, you know, objectively ruinous to society, but there's really no rhyme or reason for it. It's all a matter of chance. There are people, we can't explain why, but there are people born into the world and they're good people. And there are people born into the world who are just, there's something wrong with them. Maybe we explain it by their brain. 
Let's study the brain and find out what causes these types of behaviors. Or maybe we explain it in terms of environment. It's just where you put them. It's, it's where they grow up. And if you put them in the right environment, they're going to turn out to be good people. Put them in the wrong environment and they're going to turn out to be dangerous people. So we're going to explain it maybe that way. Maybe it's just a matter of chance. But their answer is, yeah, there's a problem, but there's no explanation for it. Therefore, there's no real solution to it. Unless you believe it's environmental, then we go to work trying to teach people to be better people. There's the answer. For some people, the problem is explained by what is external to man. An element of that I just mentioned in terms of the environment. But there's more to it than just that in the minds of some. There's a secular version of this. Our own nation, sadly, has adopted this view in a massive way. People say the real problem in society is inequality. There's inequality in the realm of wealth, or there's inequality in the realm of education, inequality in the realm of opportunity. There is this systemic stacking of the deck against certain segments of society. And the reason why you have so much trouble in the world is because of deprivation. If we just even the playing field and make sure that everyone has exactly the same, then you wouldn't have so many problems in society. Or if we could accomplish a kind of justice that flips the playing field so that those who have been oppressed for some time now are in the place of power and those who've been in the power are in the place of the oppressed. That would make things right because you see there's this bitterness that has grown in the lives of people who've been deprived and that's what explains the chaos and the violence and the hatred and all the rest. What we need is something that we can fix and it's external to mankind. But again, I say, go to places where they've tried to flip the playing field to right the wrongs, to rearrange everything so that now it's all as it should be. Go to those places and what you're going to find is they've just rearranged the chairs on the Titanic. Oppression hasn't ended. It's just who's doing the oppressing and who's being oppressed. The problem isn't fixed that way. And then you have a religious version of this. The problem is external to us. The problem is environmental or it's external. You have a religious version of this, and that is what we really need to do is moralize the world. What we need is behaviorism, but what you need is a religious motivation for this. So it's not moralizing the world without God. It's moralizing the world in the name of God. It is not transforming behavior without God. It is transforming behavior reforming behavior is probably a better word, reforming behavior in the name of God. And so what we need is people to go to church. We just need people to go to church. Need to teach people to be good people in the name of God. And so we're going to teach them to obey the Bible, rules, regulations, systems. Because the problem you see with us is something we can fix through that which is external to us. This is not a new idea. The apostles had to deal with this even in the life of the church in the early days of the church. Colossians 2.20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Very much what we learned last week as the scribes and Pharisees had these ceremonial washings 
that they had based on the law of God, but it's not found in the law of God. Something additional to the law of God, but now took on the force of the law of God. This is what you must do to be holy, they would say. Well, that kind of legalism and externalism and behaviorism is something the church has always had to fight against. Paul goes on to write, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. Listen to this, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You have a problem that can't be managed externally. That's what the Spirit of God is saying there. In contrast to all of these answers, there is no problem, or there is a problem, but it has no explanation, and it has no real solution. There is a problem, but it's something outside of us. We can manage it through politics or societal strategies, or we can manage it through religion. We can manage it behaviorally in the realm of religion. In contrast to all of that, in our verses this morning, Jesus says, no, listen, the problem with mankind is as close to man as himself. The problem is not outside you. The problem is within you. It is as near to you as your own heart. It is as near to you as your own soul. And the solution is not found in you. You can't fix it. And we'll see this morning as our Lord explains this. This morning we think about where man's trouble really lies. And we're going to look at this under three headings, verses 10 through 20. I'll just mention them as we come to them. First of all, first point is this. Jesus identified the true source of man's defilement. The true source of man's defilement, verses 10 and 11. Look at verse 10. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, hear and understand. Now, this is something Jesus would say when he's saying, I want you to pay attention. to give you something very important. Listen up. Let your ears perk up. Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man. Remember what he's talking about, scribes and Pharisees, previous verses, talking about these ceremonial washings. Do you wash your hands before you eat bread in the way that we have prescribed? Which is to indicate that if you do not, you are defiling yourself. You're violating the law, they would say. Jesus made clear what they taught wasn't even in the law. But you're violating the precepts of God, they would say. And so you are defiling yourself as you ingest this food that now is defiled because you didn't wash your hands properly. Well, Jesus says in verse 11, listen, it is not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Defilement was a big issue among the Jewish people. Purity, impurity. What it had to do with was formal fitness for worship. God gave laws under the old covenant. They were ceremonial in nature, ritual in nature. To be fit for worship, you had to keep those laws. You violate those laws, the law itself 
had a prescription for what you had to do to be considered clean again, to be cleansed from your violations, your transgressions. So you had to keep these laws to be fit for worship, corporate, formal, public worship. These laws had to be kept to be fit, to be holy. If you violated them, then you were impure, unholy, defiled, unfit for worship, and there were steps you had to take to make things right to then again be fit for public corporate worship. What our Lord is doing in our verses is really something powerful. First of all, I want you to notice he has gone from a private conversation to a public one in verse 10 after Jesus called the crowd to him. So the conversation he had in verses 1 through 9 with the Pharisees and scribes, it was private. Then he calls the crowd to him and now in public, hear and understand. It is not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him. It's what comes out of his mouth that defiles him. This is a public proclamation. But he's done something else. He's not just gone from private to public. He has gone from a discussion of ceremonial defilement to a discussion of what is true defilement. Not just what is ceremonial, not just what is ritual. Whether you're talking about a tradition or you're talking about the law of God, even the law of God. He wants people to understand what the ceremonial ritual defilement really spoke of, something larger than itself, something more substantive than itself, something real. The ceremonial defilement was just ceremonial. It was ritual, but it was meant to testify to something greater, something real. All of the ritual ceremonies of the Old Testament, these were things that served like a tutor, like a teacher, preparing people for something greater than itself. Shadows of the realities which would later come into full light with the coming of the Messiah. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He is taking the people from what was shadow to what the shadows speak of. John MacArthur commenting said this, none of those ceremonially or symbolically unclean things or conditions are ever in themselves called sinful. They were to act as vivid pictures representing sin. Under the old covenant, being involved in or having contact with a ceremonially unclean thing rendered a person unfit to participate in certain worship ceremonies or certain social activities, but that external unfitness is never called sin. It needed ceremonial cleansing, but not divine forgiveness. Yet it illustrated in a practical way the spiritual defilement of sin as circumcision illustrated the need for a heart to have the sin cut away, close quote. So MacArthur's right. I mean, the sin would have been violating God's law, but the law itself, what was put off limits, those things in and of themselves, certain foods, dietary laws, that sort of thing, the foods were not sinful themselves. They were meant to picture something that was more profound, which is sin itself. That's what it was meant to picture. In fact, in Mark's account of this encounter, it's interesting, Mark sort of comments. He goes beyond what was happening in this immediate situation, and he looks to the time he's writing in, Now he's living under the new covenant, and Mark is commenting on what the practical implications of Christ's statements are. Listen to what Mark writes, Mark 7, 14. 
And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And then Mark writes this, thus he declared all foods clean. Mark now living under the new covenant says, do you understand why we're no longer under the old covenant dietary laws? Why we're no longer going through the sacrificial system? Do you not understand that all those things were shadows? It was a teaching mechanism meant to point us to the greater reality. What the off-limits things spoke of is what man's true problem really is. It's not foods. It's sin. It's not unwashed hands. It's sin. That's the issue. And it doesn't go into him and then find itself expelled. It exists in him as near to him as his own heart. That's where man's problem is. It's in the heart. You say, well, then why does Jesus talk about what proceeds out of the mouth? Well, he's talking about, of course, our speech. What comes out of our mouths in the form of words? And what comes out of our mouths reveals the sewer that is within. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus says in verse 11, it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man. He explains that down in verse 17, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and goes into the sewer, the latrine? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from where? The heart. And what is man's heart from birth? It's a sewer, isn't it? It is the latrine. And out of the mouth is revealed a world of iniquity. So this is the first thing that Jesus does. He identifies the source of man's true defilement. What makes a man unfit for worship, truly unfit for worship? What is man's problem? This is the most important problem. What is his problem with God? Why does the Bible say that you're not born into the world a worshiper of God? You're born into the world estranged from God. In fact, according to Ephesians 2, you are by your very nature a child of wrath. We heard our sister testify to it in her baptism this morning that there was a time when she would hear the Bible's explanation of man's sin and she felt above it. And then the Lord saved her. And what did she see? No, this is me. I'm the sinner. I'm the one who deserves the wrath of God. To save us, Jesus had to drink the cup of God's wrath. His wrath had to be satisfied. Our sins had to be paid for. This is our problem with God. It is that we are sinners. And we're not mild sinners. We are scandalous sinners. We violate God's law, His holy standards, to the degree that we all deserve hell. We all deserve everlasting wrath. Our problem is found in who we are. It is in our hearts. That's what Jesus is identifying in verse 11, the source of man's true defilement before God. It's not what goes in. It's what comes out. Now notice the second thing. 
not only does he identify where our defilement is, he identifies the reason why that truth is resisted. The reason why that truth is resisted. Look at verse 12. Then the disciples came to him, as Mark 7 points out, after the crowds have been dispersed, now it's just Jesus and his disciples. They come and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? As I put the circumstances together, here's what it looks like to me in verses 1 through 9, Jesus having a private conversation with the Pharisees. Verse 10, he calls the crowd to himself, and then he makes this public statement about defilement. The Pharisees and scribes are there. They hear it. After all that goes away, now Jesus with his disciples privately, and they, they want him to know something. I mean, as if Jesus didn't already know it. Do you know they were offended? Did you know you offended the Pharisees when you said that? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone, they are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. The Pharisees, when they heard what Jesus said about defilement, it angered them, it offended them, they stumbled over it, couldn't accept it, rejected what he said. Why? Because it totally turns their worldview upside down. For them, man's need is to adhere to the law of God You are saved by keeping the law of God. Your problem is something that can be answered by rightly relating yourself to God and then keeping his word. You don't have a problem, you see, inside that can't be overcome by your own effort that requires something supernatural and gracious and merciful. Now you have law-keeping people and you have unholy people. You have pure people and you have defiled people. And the pure people are the law-keeping people. Good people and bad people. You hear this in our world all the time, don't you? That guy's just a good guy. He's a good man. Those are good people. And who are the really wicked people? They're the people who commit murder. They're the people who used to be that commit adultery. I don't know that anybody's bothered by that anymore. People who commit sexual immorality, I don't know that anybody's bothered by that in this culture much anymore. But those are the bad people. Jesus says, no, it's not what you put into yourself that makes you defiled. It's what comes out of your mouth. And this is something that the Pharisees could not accept. God's explanation for man's problem which would also, by the way, require God's solution for man's problem. And the solution is not you fixing you. The solution is God saving you. What you need is forgiveness. What you need is God's grace, which is His unmerited favor toward you. Something you don't deserve, something you can't earn, something you can't accomplish on your own. It is God because of love willing to forgive your sins and to make you his own child and to transform you at the level of your very nature. I mean, to give you a new heart that would love him and desire to please him. A new standing to declare you right with himself 
not based on what you have done, but based on what his son has done. I don't want you to miss this. The one who is pointing us to the true nature of our problem is himself the solution for our problem. Coming out of the mouth of Jesus, the son of God on earth is the diagnosis of what's wrong with you. And he himself is the answer for what is wrong with you. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? He is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who came to the earth. We celebrate this at Christmas. Who came to the earth, born of a virgin. Almighty God from all eternity, in time, in history, took to himself an additional nature, a sinless human nature, born of a virgin, so that God was with us. And then he lived the life under the law of God that you and I cannot live. He never violated God's law. Not in his mind, not in his attitudes, not with his words, not by his deeds, not with his motives or ambitions. In every realm, sinless, sinless, perfectly pure, which means he did not deserve the wrath of God, did not deserve the penalty of the law, which is death. Then he went to a cross voluntarily, willingly, and died on that cross in the place of sinners. Jesus, friend of sinners not to affirm you in your sinfulness, but to deliver us from our sinfulness. Died in our place on the cross, taking upon himself the wrath of God to deliver us from the wrath of God, to grant us full and free forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, and future. And then God's plan for saving sinners is this. When we look to his son and receive his son by faith for who he is, the Lord of glory who saves sinners from their sins, when we cry out to him for mercy and trust in him as our Lord and Savior, God forgives us and grants to us freely the righteousness of Jesus on our account so that we stand before God justified, declared right with him. So that we're not just saved initially by what Jesus did, we're saved forever by Jesus. If Jesus saves sinners, I am saved. If Jesus does not save sinners, I'm lost forever because I know who I am and I know what I deserve. I'm a sinner through and through who deserves the wrath of God. If salvation isn't by grace, through faith alone, if it's not by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, I am done. And so are you. So is every single human being on the face of the earth. This is God's explanation through his son for our problem and for the solution. Well, the Pharisees don't like it. The problem is not as you say, and the solution is not as the Bible goes on to tell us. No, You just need to keep the law. Well, why do they resist? Why do they find themselves offended? Here's our Lord's explanation for it. Do you not know they were offended when they heard this statement, the disciples say, verse 12? He answered and said, here's why they were offended. Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. You remember the story Jesus told earlier about the wheat and the tare? The owner of the field goes out and good seed is sown and wheat grows up as a result. But an enemy comes in the night and sows tares among the wheat. And the servants recognize there's something in the field that doesn't belong here. Should we uproot it? What does the owner say? No, leave it alone until the harvest. 
And when the harvest time comes, we'll separate the wheat from the tares, and the wheat will be gathered into the barns, and the tares will be burned. It's the same kind of language Jesus is using here. Do you not realize something about the Pharisees? They were not planted by my Father. They don't represent wheat. They represent counterfeit wheat. They are tares. They don't know God. They are unregenerate. They are lost. And one day it's going to be demonstrated when they're uprooted. And when the harvest comes, they're going to be burned. He's going to describe that in a different way in just a moment. But the point is, they're not saved. Do you know who finds this message offensive? People who don't know God. The only way to know God is first you must know yourself. If you don't know you're a sinner, you don't need mercy. If you don't know you have a problem, you can't fix yourself. You will never cry out to God for his saving work. You have to know you're lost to be saved. You have to know the problem is unfixable on your part to have the Lord rescue you and deliver you. The people who hear a message like this and they go, I don't think that's my problem. And I don't think that's the world's problem. You can know this about them. They don't know the Lord. That's why they think the way they think. Lost humanity finds this message offensive. And Jesus says in verse 14, don't be troubled by it to his disciples. Let them alone. You don't have to fix them. You can't fix them either. Not only can you not fix yourself, you can't fix other people. We heard our brother talk about it in the baptism this morning, baptistry, how the Lord opened his eyes to the cross. This is how people are saved, dear ones. The Lord uses us. He calls us to love people and share the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. But you and I need to know our limitations. We can't open anyone's eyes to the truth of the gospel. We can give the gospel, but only God can open their eyes to their true sinfulness and their need for the Savior. Let them alone. And then he says they're blind. They're spiritually blind. This is why they're offended. They can't see. And the people who follow them are blind also. And what happens when blind people lead blind people is they they both fall into a pit, which obviously hints at their everlasting destination, the pits of hell. Where is the source of man's true defilement? It's in his heart. Who are the people who won't believe that? The people who are still defiled. The people who don't know themselves to be sinners and in need of deliverance. This is something that the Pharisees and scribes were inexcusable for because the Old Testament makes this clear. This is not just a New Testament message. Their father, Abraham, whom they gloried in, he wasn't saved by circumcision. He was saved by faith. He wasn't saved by his works. He was saved by faith in God's provision for his sins. And the Old Testament makes this clear. What is man's problem according to the Old Testament? Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What does David say in that psalm? I was a sinner from birth. Psalm 58 verse 3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Do you ever have to teach your children to lie? I think it's Vody Bauckham who says they're vipers in diapers. Right? 
No one has to teach a child to lie. No one has to teach a child to be selfish. No one has to teach a child to be mean. There's a problem in us from birth, isn't there? Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Where is man's sickness? It's in his heart. And this all, as you know, had its origination in the fall of Adam. Adam created originally good. Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve violated that first command, that first law. That tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't partake of it. In the day you eat of it, you're going to surely die. They disobeyed and they died spiritually that moment. And death made its entrance into the world. And everyone born since Adam has been born with that problem. What is the solution according to the Old Testament? The same psalm that David writes that he was brought forth in iniquity. Psalm 51 verse 2 says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The seventh verse says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What do I need? Not more effort. I need cleansing. I need forgiveness. I need to be washed. And how do you receive that cleansing? Isaiah 55 verse 1, Come! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come just as you are, knowing that God will not leave you as you are. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? To be right with God, to have your sins and guilt put away, to know that you have everlasting life, and to be changed at the very level of your heart. The Spirit of God through Isaiah says, well, then come. If that's you, then come. Because there's something being offered to you that doesn't cost you anything. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. And if you see yourself rightly, you realize you don't have any money. What do I have to offer God? I have nothing. What do I have that could ever win His favor? Nothing. I come with no money. But he says, come. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. There's a table set before you. He's obviously speaking in poetic language. There's a table set before you, and here you are expending all of your effort, maybe even in the name of God, but there you are as empty as ever when what would truly satisfy you is offered for free. If you'll cast yourself on the mercy and grace of God in His Son, the Savior, Jesus. And the entire sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, all those sacrificings of bulls and lambs and the shedding of blood, what did it speak of? It speaks of how God would save sinners. Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law... Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Day after day, year after year, the slaughter of ritualistically fit animals, pure, without spot, without blemish, was speaking of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, who would offer Himself as the sin sacrifice whose blood would be shed to answer for our sins and deliver us 
from God's wrath. Who refuses that message? Who finds it offensive? Who rejects it? Who says, no, we're good people? People whom the Heavenly Father did not plant and one day will be uprooted. Blind people who insist on their goodness when they have none. And if others follow them, they're just as blind. And the end is destruction. So Jesus points us to the true source of our defilement. It's in us. It's sin. And he points us to the explanation for why people reject that truth. And it's because they don't know God. Third point, final point, Jesus explains this truth about defilement. So he's identified it. Now in verse 15, he explains it. We're thankful for Peter, aren't we? Once again, the representative disciple. He's the one who gives voice to what they don't understand. Wasn't the only one who didn't understand, but he's the one who voices it. Peter answered and said to him, explain the parable to us. And what he's talking about in terms of the parable is what Jesus said about what enters the mouth versus what comes out of the mouth. Peter says, would you explain it to us? Now, if the Pharisees and scribes understood enough to be offended, certainly Peter and the other disciples understood to that degree. I don't know that Peter didn't understand it at all. I think what he's saying is, the Pharisees were offended. I want to be sure why they were offended. Can you explain to us what it was that you said that offended them? Explain it to us. And Jesus, with a mild rebuke and and, an exhortative kind of rebuke, are you still lacking in understanding also? Learn these lessons, men. That pattern we see, the disciples not quite getting it, Jesus patiently teaching them, and they grow slowly in their understanding. Now he explains it. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth, what happens to it? It passes through your stomach. It's expelled. It's food. Food in and of itself could never defile you. That's not your problem. Verse 18, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. If you want to know where your problem exists, just listen to yourself. That's what defiles a man before God. You see, in real terms, this is what defiles a person. Verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witness, slander. Even after the Lord saves you, he makes you a new creation, but the flesh is still there. The flesh will be with us until the day we're glorified. And can you agree with me? The flesh never improves. Now we know a battle we didn't know when we were lost between walking by the Spirit or indulging the flesh. So that even as believers, we recognize out of our own mouths sometimes, we're not yet home, we're not yet glorified. And you listen to the talk that goes on in this world. Just listen to it. And what do you see? You see the evidence of evil thinking. Out of the mouths of men comes what goes on in their brains. And what goes on in their brains is evil. What comes out of the mouth murders. Which our Lord identified in the Sermon on the Mount as hatred. You say, I've never murdered anyone. I bet you have by God's standard. I bet you have. Have you ever hated someone? You say, I only hated them for a little while. 
Murders are committed in a little while, aren't they? Yeah, out of the mouth comes hatred for people. Out of the mouth, adulteries. You hear people talk. Do they really respect the institution of marriage? Do they really find themselves to be one woman men and one man women? Are they really devoted to the person they're married to in a way that honors God? Or listen to this world's speech, and don't you see evidence all around of unfaithfulness to marriage, vows and covenants and promises? Adulteries, sexual immoralities. The world is just filthy right now. In this realm, in our culture, listen to what men talk about, women talk about, sexual immoralities, thefts. Greed is a form of, it's at the root of theft. Dissatisfaction, discontentment. You never have enough. You always want more. You want what someone else has. You don't have it. You're a thief in your heart. False witness. You lie. You lie. You lie sometimes in overt ways. You lie sometimes in subtle ways. And sometimes your lies destroy other people, slanders. Sometimes your lies affect how someone else views the person you're talking about. In a hurry, anxious to tell people what you know. When what you know is twisted and your twisted version is going to destroy the person you're slandering. At least their reputation in the eyes of someone you're talking to. Do you care? This is what defiles people. This is just a small representative list. There's, there's a lot more where that comes from. Out of the heart emerges this sewer gas. Out of the heart emerges this world of iniquity. Verse 20, these are the things which defile the man. You think your problem is with food? Your problem is in you. So let me finish. Four questions for you and we're done. One, do you realize, have you realized there was something wrong with you from your birth? Ephesians 2, 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, that is by birth, children of wrath, even as the rest. Have you ever really acknowledged that, that what is wrong with you was wrong with you from the very beginning? And do you realize that that problem is universal among all mankind? It's not just you. It's the whole world of humanity. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. See, by God's standard, dear ones, there is no good person, not one. Their throat is an open grave. Using a different analogy there, out of the mouth comes, comes the, the aroma of death. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The problem is not just with you, it's with everybody. Do you realize that that problem is as near to you as your own self? 
You are a transgressor. You deserve death for your transgressions. But do you realize, last question, that God has provided the solution? And it's not you. You can't fix it. The solution is not to deny the problem. The solution is not to deny that there is a solution for the problem. The solution is not something you can provide for yourself. The solution is found in the grace of God. And the grace of God is found in the Son of God. Jesus is the answer for your problem. The one who identifies the problem is the solution for the problem. Have you ever come to Jesus as the friend of sinners? Saying of yourself, I am the sinner. Like that publican beating your breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul adds, of whom I am the foremost. I'm the worst. But praise be to God, Jesus came to save people just like me. Look to Christ and live. Look to Christ and live. And then you'll discover in Him, He makes new people. Oh, we're not sinless yet. We look forward to the day when we'll be free from sin. The one who has made us new people will one day give us a new physical nature that matches the new spiritual nature. The flesh will be gone. Our battle with sin will be over. We'll be conformed to the image of Jesus, glorified in His presence. Don't you long for that day? But until that day, you know this, you're not yet what you're going to be, but you're not who you were. Jesus changes people's lives at the very level of their heart. He is who you need. Look to Christ and live. And the church would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your holy word. Thank you that your holy son in these verses identifies our problem and offers himself as our solution. May this day be a day when sinners repent and believe. And may this be a day when rescued sinners rejoice and give you praise for what you have done in our lives in and through your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.